be whatever you want to be and kiss mommy many times over, many, many times over. Hi, I'm June Castlemere, and you're listening to In the Pocket, a podcast brought to you by the National Filipino American Lawyers Association. So it's cold and wintry for many of our members, but we're bringing you some warmth from the islands of Hawaii in the form of Eric de los Santos, who recently finished up his term as Infala president. Eric was interviewed by our dearest Jonah Toleno right before the start of the Enfala Gala in November, which is why you'll hear the buzz of conversation throughout the podcast. Sort of feels like you're eavesdropping in on a holiday party conversation. Eric takes us on his personal journey from living with his protective and loving family in Hawaii to cozy sweaters on Brown's University campus in Rhode Island, and finally to law school protests in Washington State, where he and Chad Hartley, whose interview you heard last month, now make their warm and welcoming home. I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, and that's where I grew up. I, there's a little place called Kalihi Valley in Honolulu, Hawaii, and people in Hawaii know about it. Uh, it is well known for having a lot of Filipinos and um, being a very wonderful place in terms of it being local. It's like a lo- where local culture thrives, and so. I grew up there, um, and then at some point, as I got older, my family moved uh, closer to where Pearl Harbor is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though we moved to a different part of the state, I still wanted to be in Kalihi Valley and with my friends, the people I call them, and to uh, be a part of uh, their lives and have them be in my life, you know, until I graduated from high school. And where'd you go to high school? It's called Farrington High School, mm-hmm. and it's uh, well known for being having a really great football team. Not well known for um, sending kids to Ivy League schools. But now they are. <laughs> but now they are. Now they because are. Because you went to Brown. Yes. So we'll get to that. How many siblings do you have, Eric? I have one older brother who um, I love very dearly. We never got along as kids, but. As men, we are like the best of brothers. And I also have an adopted sister from the Philippines, uh, my uh, sister Jane. And I also have an adopted brother, Silvestri, who I've never met, but he lives in the Philippines. Oh, really? How did you find out about him and when? Well, I've always known of him, but I've been on the mainland, so I've not ever had that time to interact with him. And in the short time that he was in Honolulu, I never got to meet him. Um, And uh, he eventually went back to the Philippines, and so I never got to see him. Tell us about the um, culture in Hawaii and growing up as a Filipino in Hawaii and how that shaped you. So I've... Because I, that's where I grew up and that's all I've ever really known. And then, of course, the lives I've seen, on, the things I've seen on television. You know, I always thought that most people, Filipinos at least, lived the way I did. And I had all the kinds of things that you could think about in terms of our culture. Uh, I ex- experienced all of it, right? Everything from the Filipino food and um, having big family dinners to chicken fighting to you know, growing Filipino vegetables. And I mean, that was just all part of like how we grew up. I mean, and having a big family around, that was just so normal for me. So I always thought that other Filipinos, particularly the ones in the mainland, you know, would have something similar to that. And that's not necessarily the case, but 
growing up in Hawaii is like they say is like almost growing up in, in the Philippines, although I've never been. Yeah, especially that chicken fighting part. The right? chicken fighting, that was normal. I was like, oh yeah, everybody chicken fights. And so I've, I've witnessed it and I've seen it and I've gotten into it. But my favorite part about going with my dad to the chicken fights was the desserts and the sweets and all the things I would get from um, the vendors who were selling all that. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, if my dad's chickens won, you know, we would get to eat the chicken that lost and we'd have roast caldo for the evening. Now, I know you love to cook. Yeah, my family, are, they're all amazing cooks. And my mom, um, she uh, actually started as a counter girl in the hospital that she worked at. And her dream was always to become the fry cook. And so she became the, the fry cook of the hospital. And I used to go in as a little kid and watch her cook. And she would always make wonderful, like, you know, American dishes, lasagna, you know, tuna sandwiches, things of that sort. And at home, my dad was a Filipino cook and he would make, you know, the more um, interesting dishes uh, like the tripe stew and pinak bet and other things. So I really was exposed to all that different kind of cooking. And the funny thing was I was never thought of as a cook as a kid. Growing up, I was always like the nerdy uh, kid. Studious. Yeah, so like don't even get him near the kitchen. And so I never really learned all of that, although I, I love to just witness and watch how things mm -hmm. are being done. I never got to do any of it, and I don't even it's know. It's so interesting to me, because I, I follow your social media posts. Yeah. And I live for the posts of you cooking <laughs> the, the, the vegetables from your garden. Yeah. You cooking Filipino dishes for yeah. Chad. I could almost smell it, the aroma. Yeah, the oh my God. My dad makes this one dish that always brings me like back to childhood, and I, I cannot like for the life of me explain like how much it just makes me thrill to even like think it's cooking and to smell it. I don't know what it is. I don't I have no idea how I ended up being being well I wouldn't call myself a great cook, but I would can't even imagine how I learned how to do all that except maybe thinking about my mom and like mm -hmm. how much love she put into all that she did and um, maybe that's the way I express my love is through cooking. Oh that's beautiful. I love it, Eric. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Okay. I want to talk about your childhood some more, but um, switching gears from cooking to lawyering. Yeah. Would you say that your childhood shaped your desire to become a lawyer, and if so, in what way? I don't know about being a lawyer, but it really, my childhood at some point really made me wanna, want to be able to be strong and assert voice. Mm -hmm. I remember I was very close to my mom. My mom's passed on, um, and I lost her at a young age, but I was very, very close to her. And if there's anything I, I hated most was seeing her mistreated, whether it was as a waitress and being yelled at or having my father not talk to her in the right tone to anyone. I was fiercely, fiercely protective of her. And I remember one incident at a grocery store where my mom was paying a bill and uh, paying her tab. And, just the way that folks, the, the, the person at the register was not happy with how long it took for her to find her checkbook and was expressing a lot of um, frustration with her. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at my mom and how earnest she was to try and like find what she wanted to do to, to pay. And I remember him telling my mom, what's wrong with her? What, what, what couldn't she get her? 
get her checkbook and she was causing all this and how old were you at this time oh my goodness I was probably like seven or okay. little little and seeing my mom helpless and without voice being able to fight back I think really made an impression on me and uh, I'm always uh, so moved with emotion when I see any situation where I see something similar like that happening. And that's so deeply embedded in me that it will produce a fierceness from me that yes. is kind of hard to control. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> Did you feel like you fit in when you were growing up? Never, but never. I didn't care. I never really cared about that. I was very fortunate to have an older brother who really was protective of me. I gotta tell you, when I was a little kid, I wanted to just do whatever I wanted to do and I acted there whatever way I wanted to and no one could tell me either way yeah. that it was not proper to behave that way or that I was too exuberant, flamboyant or out there because I had an older brother who kept watch over me. What I found out later on was in uh, junior high and high school when it was the 80s and I came to, came to school dressed in punk rock or had my hair purple or whatever. Mm -hmm. There were kids who didn't think that was cool, but behind the scenes, my brother, who was a jock, was doing his magic and making sure that no one ever, ever said anything to me mm. or would act out against me because of me, of who I, who I was. He had eyes on those people. Oh, yeah. Don't even yeah. think about it. So I grew up being Did really you know fearless. That? I Did found you know out that? later on. Later? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found out later on, and, you know, when you're a kid, you know, there are a lot of things in life and, and things that happen that make you, keep you, you know, try to keep you in line or try and, like, quell what your true spirit is, yes. and that's unfortunate, but I had a brother who was fiercely protective of me and made sure that I got to be whatever I wanted to be. It's awesome. How much older is he than you? A year and eight months. Okay. And you're still very close now? Oh my gosh, yeah. We never were, but we are, um, we're just so tight. And, uh, you know, my mom used to tell the story that when she gave birth to her son, that <laughs> or the not. soothsayer said, oh, you know, you're going to have two boys and you need to keep the umbilical cord of them both and put them in a jar because they will not like each other and you will need to keep them together and that will be a symbol or that is important to do. And so all the while my wow. mom's dresser, there was this like pink uh, kind of vial. I was like, what is this, you know? And she would never say it. And then at some point I learned about it, but both our umbilical cords were in there. What is a soothsayer? So she is a person that will tell you about the future. Mm -hmm. And she told what your to mother see. this oh, yeah. before she had your brother and before she when she had this, my brother when she had your brother yeah and before she even knew that your mother yeah, would before be I was even born. You. yeah yeah wow is that a story that's well known among so, your family I don't know but my mom told me that story my mom had a very um, interesting life and she they say that what did she they say she had some kind of special tongue where whatever she said happened and so she would, she could predict things or see things before they happened. And when she said it, it happened. And 
I know it will sound crazy for the audience. She always knew she was uh, going to have, her life was going to end early and it was going to be a lot of suffering. And she told that to me all the while growing up. Wow, Eric, how does that affect a child growing up? How, how did that affect you? I don't that's know. Deep. I don't know. I still, I don't know. I mean, that's the first time I've thought about it, like, mm -hmm. in terms of what did it mean for me as a child. I, I don't know, but um, when it did happen, I said, all right, she said this was going to happen, that there would be a lot of pain and suffering when she would leave. I'm so sorry. I know. But and she was a beautiful lady. It gives extra meaning to that phrase. Mother knows best. Yeah. She knew. I'm telling you, this lady, this she was, and she, John, she was so beautiful. I can't even tell you. Um, you know, cancer is a horrible, horrible disease. It is. Um, well, I'm glad for the lady. years that you had with her. Yes. And like many strong Filipino women, she had a great impact on you and the legacy that she's left behind. You're clearly honoring it. Thank you. I'm honored to know you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. How does a little brown Filipino kid from Hawaii get to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island? Were you the first to go to four-year college university in your family? Oh, yes. I was the first. And how did you know to even apply there? And it's so Ivy how did you know? Yeah, so... You know, when you're in a, when the way I grew up or the, the school I went to, the, you know, going to an Ivy League school is not something you really think about or contemplate. So what happened though was Brown University came to my school to do an outreach. And they came to talk about the college. And my friend Vince and I went to hear what was this all about. Didn't even know what Brown was. Mm -hmm. And they had one brochure that they brought. And he told me, you take it. I go, okay. And I took it and I applied. And that's really how I ended up at Brown. I mean, I would have never applied to it if that person had not applied to the school. So no one had ever come to the school. That is that crazy? really compelling. Yes, you were sought out. I don't what, know. So I know too from Reading up on your history oh and your bio. Goodness. Oh my goodness. Homework. Eric, you, you started um, doing a lot for diversity and inclusion at a young age in college. Yes. You did a lot at Brown. Tell yeah. us about that. So I helped to start you? the Filipino Alliance at Brown. Okay. I was very active with the, you know, we, our minority groups belong to an organization, I mean, belong to the Third World Center. We called ourselves Third World Students. And I was very vocal about, in college, about being someone of a different background, not only, um, not only from being from Hawaii, but being Filipino, um, being the son of immigrants, and uh, being from a working class family. So much so that I talked about it all the time, and um, it got me elected to be student body president at Brown. <laughs> of course it did. That, that was meant to happen. In the same way you were sought out, Brown was was just awaiting your arrival to, to elect you. But it, it's so it's so crazy to me to be part of an institution or part of something where you're not fully recognized. And so I just knew, like, 
the folks there at Brown needed to hear our stories and like say, hey, we are part of this institution just as much as anybody else is, and this is our story. And so my mouth <laughs> got me into, not trouble, but got me into some of the things that I, I, I was able to be a part of at college. Did you have a culture shock coming from Hawaii to Brown University? You know, I think I craved it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to be someplace cool. I wanted to be like, I want to put on sweaters and I want to, you know, be preppy. Yeah. Um, and I want to be a part of that whole New England culture. And so I was really open to a, a whole bunch of things. And, and so while I knew it was completely different and it would be not anything I was used to, I, was so, I had such an open mind. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to learn from people and um, all the differences and just grab it all. Absorb it. it. Yeah. Um, were there some things that surprised you about college and being out there on the East Coast? Literally the other side of our country. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was. There was. I mean... They, I guess what surprised me the most was that, um, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of uh, wealth at the school. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, would, I was not aware of like, just how folks could really live in this life yes. in terms of their privileges and just the freedom to be able to have whatever you want in life. Mm -hmm. That was something that was very shocking to me mm -hmm. because I had not grown up with that kind of outlook. Um, and it was also just amazing for me in terms of the, the people I met and the students I met being not only from the United States but from different countries. Right. Uh, it was something else in terms of just changing my, my perspective on what was out there and mm -hmm. what was possible. Um, Are you glad you did it, that you went to Brown? Sounds like oh my it was God, a very it was like the best. I absolutely was like the best. I loved it, absolutely so, loved it. I wish I knew you back then. I wish I could see you on campus in your preppy sweaters and being student body president. Oh my gosh. Today, you <laughs> are a proud, beautiful, gay man. Yes. And, Tell us about that. Was that part of your college experience? And so I was very um, focused on on me, unfortunately, and I say that in a bad way because, to the detriment of, of to the detriment of things that I should have been addressing personally, I was focused on the outward me and what I needed, what I wanted to accomplish, and so. I wasn't out in college, mm -hmm. and in fact, I dated women, mm -hmm. and I actually, in my head, had laid out steps that were important for me to become a, a, a senator for the, of the United States mm -hmm. at some point. Okay. Having the right education and having the right connections, but also having uh, a wife. Uh, now, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I want you to continue this, but did you know at this time that you had a different sexual preference than women, and yet you were dating, or, or is that kind of a, a I process? might have had, like, attractions, but it wasn't something I was really focused on. I was really focused on what I needed to do to... You had a checklist of what yeah. you needed to... Yeah, yeah, and I didn't, know, I didn't know myself, and so I didn't even know 
I couldn't even conceive of what that would be like or what that would, why that was important. So Eric's path to becoming the man he is today took a turn during his last year of college. Here, he takes Jonah and us on his actual and metaphorical journey. In my last year of college, I lost my mom. Okay. It was one of her uh, things to have always seen me graduate, but she also knew that she wouldn't see me graduate. Mm. And so that really sent me into a different plane that I can't even explain. Luckily, right before she did pass on, I did, during my college years, with my best friend, uh, take a trip across the United States, left, New, left the East Coast, spent six weeks in the Southwest of America before we drove up to Alaska. And that trip really kind of brought me in touch with the existence of a deeper self that, that hadn't yet materialized. And knowing that, that I had that really made me recognize the importance of filling out this hull of the shell of myself mm -hmm. and finding, finding myself. And so that traveling across America really kind of brought, I, I kind of said, I need, to, I need to be a real person. Yeah. I need to be real. And it's hard because in college, and you know, we're teenagers for a lot of, the first part of college and, you know, it's, uh, of course we're only thinking about ourselves. Yeah. We're, we're trying to figure out who we are and what we're doing. I, I feel that way right now. I'm still trying to figure out my place on this planet and who am I? And I think it's constantly evolving. But that sounds like you had a real Oh, you would have tripped if you, you would have tripped if you saw me out of college right after that trip. Yeah. Because I had long hair. I didn't really care about what I, how I dressed. I mean, I was more about like just being free and being myself. And see that I have a hard time totally. believing also because you're and impeccably dressed yeah. every time I see you. Uh, I should show you pictures. And I went to college and like I had no tolerance. Not with intolerance. Yeah. I just, you know, my focus uh, with relationships was really about being real and with people. Yeah. And so there's a kind of power like that when you go back to college and you've seen that, and everything you say. It just comes from somewhere that's not worried about what other people think. There's a power in that. And so my last year, I was just speaking okay. truth. Did you come to terms with yourself and your sexuality at that time? No, it wasn't at that time, but it was a year after, after I lost my mom. And I was my first year of law school. And so um, did you go to law school right after yeah. college? Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your law school experience and where did you go for law school? I went to the University of Washington in Seattle okay. and I would have never ever thought that I would end up on the West Coast, mm -hmm. if anything. So it was a shocker to me just to re recognize that I was there and to realize I'm here on the West Coast and then to be in law school. Never thought that I would actually go to law school. Um, but it was something to do, and I was in a place that was closer to home and, and to my dad, particularly with the loss of mm -hmm. my mom. And I, uh, I can honestly say my first, my first memories of law school was just trying to come to the grips that I'll, I'm actually here in some place I never thought I would be. My first year of law school, I spent a lot, I spent protesting a lot because mm -hmm. it was the first time we moved to, um, that's the first Iraq war that we had. Mm -hmm. And I had a best friend in Kuwait who was um, 
caught up in all that. And so... So it affected you personally. Yeah. And so I spent uh, the first part of my law school um, being a part of the National Lawyers Guild and uh, being there to help people who got arrested uh, from protesting and then showing up at the, uh, the federal um, buildings to protest. And I remember people going, oh my God, what is Eric doing? He should be studying. He's not going to make it. And at the same time, I was coming to terms with my uh, sexuality. And so I would show up in class in the morning, if I, if I did, if I wasn't protesting, smelling of cigarettes uh, from the night before, from being at the clubs, yeah. and in a tank top. Mm -hmm. And I know everyone was thinking, oh my gosh, he's not gonna pass, is he? He's not gonna make it to the second year. And also, at this time, you're extremely buff and ripped and... <laughs> So that took time out of that your schedule. That came afterwards. That came yeah. my second and third. <laughs> oh my goodness! I can't believe you told that story. Yeah, that uh, came that came a little later, but uh, while in law school, because for you those know, listening, that that's an homage to the earlier interview with uh, Chad, Eric's husband, and how they met. Yeah, because at the gym, you so, know, the person that I am, you kind of recognize what do I need to do to to be successful, mm -hmm. no matter what I where I'm at, and like in the. Uh, as a gay man in, in the gay world, you know, your physique is part of your, um, you know, it, it is part of your success. Mm -hmm. And so, I knowing that, I honed in and I focused on that. Mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. What is your definition of success? You talk about being a successful gay man. <laughs> I think being successful is having having wonderful, loving people around you, mm -hmm. having, being able to eat whatever you want to eat, being well-fed, having shelter and feeling comfortable. Um, but just being able to be in a position to, to live and experience the things that you want to experience in life to make your, your life whole and having loved ones around you to experience it with you. And do you feel like you've attained that? Oh my gosh, many times over. To the so rest lucky. of us, it, it feels like you have. You're an example <laughs> to all of us for, for that definition of success and our own definition. Um, so let me go back to your earlier point where you were, you were you had a list in place of what the things were you thought you needed to become a senator. Yeah. You obviously took a turn somewhere yeah. different. Maybe yeah. that's still on the horizon. Yeah. That would be awesome. But um, you've now been in-house for over 15 years. Yes. Okay. Um, tell us about the work that you do now. So I'm the lead employment counsel for my company. It's publicly traded. We are a staffing firm, and we have many, many employees, particularly temporary workers all over the United States and globally. So the team I manage is responsible for dealing with all the issues from an employment relations perspective that can arise. I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine. There are a you lot. are a very wanted man. There are a lot. And, uh, and also providing advice to the folks in our operations team to allow them to continue to, to do their business on a, on a daily basis. So it's very demanding. It's very, the volume is, is amazing and the issues that you face are, you never get the same issue. You know, I mean, you do over a certain, you know, but you get a new one all the time. Sure, and the law is always changing. And yeah. there's always a different factual scenario. So you have to 
constantly be up on that. Yeah, like my phone keeps going off because I'm getting issues, 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 <laughs> issues. Yeah. Um, tell us about the diversity and inclusion initiative. No, actually, initiatives yeah. that you have implemented and, frankly, <laughs> dreamed up and put into place. And you're recognized for that. I am so grateful to have been part of the first diversity inclusion council um, that our company started. It just showed a real true commitment to diversity and inclusion in terms of creating an, an entity that was responsible for driving home uh, diversity and inclusion. Because back in the day, whenever you use the term diversity, it was something that most people would roll their eyes on and say that they're, they're not a part of. So. To be a part of the company's journey on that and to help lead it to where it is today has been such a rewarding and amazing uh, experience. Have there been frustrations along the way? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is there more work to be done? We haven't even scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. But to be able to, be, to lay the foundation for creating an environment where people can come to work and just be themselves and to not have to worry about too much except work. knowing, yeah, except work and knowing that they can feel comfortable and, and be yeah. happy and joyful. Oh my gosh, that's such like one of the best things to be able to know that you're doing for, uh, doing for an organization. And I want to thank you for that because, um, you know, as somebody who grew up on an island and you didn't have much exposure to things like Ivy League uh, universities, and you're now an example to a lot of people. Um, I know when I was in law school, being in-house counsel was sort of like the, that was like the end goal for yeah. a lot of us. You know, you do your time at either a big law firm or, um, you know, a smaller firm, especially in litigation. But in-house just sounded like that was the place you wanted to be, right? Now that I've, I've been a litigator for 19 years and I work with a lot of general counsel, it doesn't, it's not as um, laid back, I think, as I thought it would be yeah. in my younger years. It's a very demanding position. It's also very hard to get to. You don't just waltz into um, an in-house position. Um, I think, you know, you can intern and then you learn there, but to be in a position of seniority, you really have to have some chops. And so, and for luck. the rest of us, and some luck, yeah. sure, being in the right place at the right time. But what I find so inspiring about you is that you're, you're in this position and you're giving back every day. So thank you for that. You're also showing us that there are people that look like us who are in this position. And there's no reason why we can't be. If that's what we want to do, then the only thing stopping us is ourselves, yeah. right? So seeing someone like you gives us that message. So thank you, Eric. <laughs> Eric recently finished up his term as Enfala president, but we all have a story as to how he got introduced to the organization. Here, Eric recounts his first time encountering so many other Filipino-American lawyers and how that impacted his decision to get involved. And then he and Jonah talk about how much the organization means to both of them. I ended up going to Kansas City for Napaba for the first time. Okay. Uh, where we all met together and came face to face with Filipino attorneys, a lot of them from all across the country. And there's something to be said about, for the first time, um, coming into contact with something you didn't think would be possible and seeing it materialize, and then feeling the power mm -hmm. on so many different levels of what people who look like you, have experiences similar like you, 
who have futures, you know, similar to, or dreams similar to you, all being in one room together. And from all over the country. And all over the country. Yeah. I mean, not only is it historic, it was like so potent and meant to happen and then realizing we got to do something with this. And so, so glad to have been a part of it mm -hmm. from, from Kansas City on. The first time I met you was at the first mid-year conference in Las Vegas. And I, as someone who was coming into that, and it was so exciting to see this proliferating into something yeah. official. Yeah. And um, the word that comes to mind about the energy and all of that was, is electric. It was, it was, something was waiting to happen, and it did. Here we are, this is our, um, which annual fifth. gala is this? Fifth. fifth annual gala. In gowns and, and uh, tuxedos. We're in gowns and tuxedos. Um, it's been really amazing. And so, um, it, you also were very, and still are, involved in Flow, the Filipino Lawyers of Washington, right? So yes. What has it meant to you to be able to fellowship and, and network on a professional level nationally? I think what the one thing I take take from away from all this is just the diversity of the attorneys who we have across the country. Although we're all Filipino Americans and we have very similar experiences, man, we have all different uh, backgrounds and all different expertises in the law, and we all have different leadership styles and we all have different sensibilities about how to run things and mm -hmm. to be successful. And so as Enfala president, I get to be a part of moderating and harnessing all that to be one in moving forward uh, the goals of the national organization. It hasn't been easy, it's been very challenging, but when you are able to weather the differences and deliver, it's the best feeling. It's the best it's feeling amazing. and the most rewarding. What's um, your priority as immediate past president? Because you are stepping down as of tonight and passing the baton to Philip Nulud. Um, you know, my immediate uh, goal is to make sure that we learn from the experiences from the past and to lay down a foundation or continue to lay the foundation of developing a unified and cohesive organization. Mm -hmm. The Philippines is a diverse country. We're a diverse people. And our history in the Philippines and the way we are viewed in the Philippines has an impact on how we operate here in this country. Mm -hmm. And so while we are all together tonight and we are happy to be in each other's presence, ecstatic, we need to recognize that there are some issues that still need to be addressed internally. And so as Infala president, I want us to bridge that divide of how we are viewed worldwide and how we are viewed here to come to an understanding of the importance of making sense of it so that we can reconcile it and derive strength from it to become even a more powerful organization. 
you know, a lot of the other uh, bar, minority bar associations, they don't have to worry too much about, or at least you know, in my perspective, mm -hmm. but I have to worry about having a cohesive national identity. Um, but I think with, in our culture, because we're so diverse and so able to fit into so many different realms, that there might be a little bit of a challenge in terms of developing unity and or mobilizing quickly on something. At the same time, our differences as a people is precisely the stuff that will make us even greater and stronger. Because we are able to fit in everywhere, because of our culture, if we are able to come as one and still be able to um, move forward on all this stuff, we're going to do it in a way that no other uh, organization has and will be able to. That, that's really interesting that you say that. It resonates with me because I think um, one thing unique to the Philippine culture is the number of influences on the Philippine country from other parts of the world. There are yeah. some people who, um, even the cooking is very diverse yeah. within the Philippines. Yeah. So there are some people who have more Chinese influence, some with more um, yeah. Indian and uh, Spanish influence. So I think we as Filipinos are diver diverse already, inherently. Yeah. So I think that everything you're talking about, we're built for that. Where would you like to see Anfala in five years? I would like to see Anfala being recognized as being a critical national voice for the Filipino-American community and the minority community, and being known as the organization that was able to take its goals and dreams for its own people and translate it to the rest of the country, for the, for the rest of the country to follow and become even better. Well, I think that you've contributed greatly to that, Eric. Thank you. Um, any words for your husband, Chad, who has been a great presence for us? And, and we just love your husband, Chad. Any words for him? He's been so supportive. I just want to thank him um, for being the man and the person that he is. And uh, in this past year and in many years, to allow my life to envelop our lives together for the sake of indulging my dreams and hopes. And I can only hope to be able to deliver and do the same for him in his quest to be the birth person he can be. It's beautiful. We want to thank him also because it's in large part due to his efforts and him sharing you with us that we've been able to reap the benefits of your contribution. So thank you both. Um, one last question, Eric. Yes. What would you like to say to that little boy in Hawaii if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now and where you are now? Be whatever you want to be and kiss mommy many times over, many, many times over. That's a good message for all of us, I think. Um, Eric, it's been a pleasure. Gosh, I'm not crying, you're crying. Um, thank you for your service in this past year. Um, I want to say it's been a privilege to get to know you as a friend, um, as a role model. I love you. Um, I love what we've done, what you have done, and I look forward to the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. We're going to live a long life together, all of Thank us, you. okay? And your mother will be watching down on us. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to In the Pocket. 
podcast brought to you by the National Filipino American Lawyers Association. If you'd like more information on Infala, visit us online at infala.com or look us up on Facebook. Many thanks to Jonah Taleno for her warmth and her candor, and of course to Eric for sharing his story with us, and to Chad for sharing Eric with us. Look for some really incredible podcast episodes coming up in the new year. We're highlighting some amazing members whose presence in our organization serves to inspire and uplift us. We look forward to you joining us in 2020 here at In the Pocket. In the Pocket.